Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part one of a two-part series titled, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? with Rowan White, Rachel Wolfram, and host Melissa K. Nelson, co-sponsored with the Center for Humans and Nature. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Kira Epstein. I'm the program coordinator at the New School at Commonweal. And I'm here today with Brooke Hecht and Catherine Cummings from the Center for Humans and Nature to welcome our host, Melissa K. Nelson, and our guests, Rowan White and Rachel Wolfram. This is a geographically diverse event. Melissa, Rowan, and I are in Northern California. Brooke and Catherine are in Chicago. And Rachel is joining us from New Zealand. This is a gathering that likely would not have happened without the events of the last 18 months moving us to webinar events. We are so pleased to co-present this conversation with the Center for Humans and Nature and to help them celebrate the publication of their new book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? And I want to say that I feel really honored to welcome our speakers and our hosts today, Indigenous women leaders doing amazing things in the world. And we're grateful that you are all here with us to hear the conversation as well. Thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal today. We hope that you will join us next week as well for the second half of this conversation series about the Seventh Fire, when Melissa talks to two more Indigenous women leaders, Kalina Bray and Nicola Wagenberg, for recording this conversation. And we'll have produced audio and video files available on our website. You can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I always want to thank Ken Adams, who makes this all run from behind the scenes. So thank you, Ken. And with that, I will turn it over to Brooke Hecht, the Executive Director for the Center for Humans and Nature. Thank you so much, Kira, and hello to all of you. Um, I just want to quickly say that we at the Center for Humans and Nature are so honored to be partnering on this event and also to have been a partner in publishing this book. I'm also so grateful to have had the chance to work on this project with my close colleague at the Center for Humans and Nature, Catherine Kasuf Cummings. Catherine leads the questions for Resilient Future program at the center, and um, she is going to share a bit of the background on this project with all of you. So thank you again for joining us today. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, it's a gift to work on this question of what kind of ancestor do you want to be and in service of the center's mission with you. And I'd also like to thank Kira and Commonweal for enthusiastically partnering to make a space for the important conversations we'll be engaged in today. I'm joining you from the traditional homelands of the people of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, Potawatomi, and Odawa, as well as the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk nations who knew this land as a place of exchange, gathering, and healing. And I'm honored to gather with you today as this is the 10 year anniversary of the Center for Humans and Nature's publication, Questions for Resilient Future, from which the Ancestor book emerged. For 10 years now, the Questions for Resilient Future has nurtured a public practice of questions, engaging with the world and refining our responses to the challenges of our time with humility, curiosity, and through expanding community. If you visit humansandnature.org, you can explore the questions, including our current question, 
What Stories Does the Land Hold, which is led by our editorial fellow, Christine Lukasovich. You can read others' responses and share your own responses there at the website. And additionally, later this month, the center's journal, Minding Nature, will feature a special section on the questions for resilient future. And that section includes an essay, not to be missed, by Christy Belcourt, the artist whose work is on the cover of the book that we're gathering around today, the Ancestor book. So I'm delighted to be able to celebrate this, this anniversary with all of you and with a question that gives us root today, the question, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? I hope this conversation will inspire you if you haven't yet to check out the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be?, which was released this year in partnership with the University of Chicago Press and is co-edited by colleagues all here present on the call today, John Hausdorfer, Brooke Hecht, Brooke Perry Hecht, and Melissa K. Nelson and myself. This gathering today is specifically rooted in the section focusing on the seventh fire that Melissa crafted with the colleagues that are two of whom are joining us today. And in addition to being co-editor of the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Um, I'd like to introduce Melissa K. Nelson, who is an ecologist, also an indigenous scholar activist. She is Anishinaabe, Métis, and Norwegian, and is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians. Melissa teaches at Arizona State University and is president of the Cultural Conservancy. In addition to the book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Melissa has contributed to and edited traditional ecological knowledge, learning from indigenous practices for environmental sustainability, and original instructions, indigenous teachings for a sustainable future. She is also the creator and host of the Native Seed Pod podcast. I'm pleased to be here to listen and learn with all of you. Melissa, thanks for everything you contribute to this ancestor question, including living it each day. Chimigwich, Catherine, thank you so much. And thank you all for those beautiful introductions. Buju Nindinwe Maganatug, Melissa Nelson, Indigeni Kaz, Mokunzi Gabawi, Kidashnindugo, and then Anishnebe Ikwe, Mikinakwa Juing, Turtle Mountain Chippewa, Nindunjiba. I greeted you all as relatives and introduced myself as Melissa Nelson. My Ojibwe name is Makunzi Gabawik. I'm a member of the Lynx clan, Anishinaabe woman, proud member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. And I'm so happy to be here with you today. Welcome. I am standing currently on the lands of the Coast Miwok Nation, the sovereign lands of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria on the beautiful West Mountain, also known as Mount Tamalpais for those in Northern California. Um, I honor the uh, Coast Miwok and Ohlone peoples of the San Francisco Bay Area, the beautiful ocean and bay and waters and mountains and lands that they've tended to for thousands of years. So I'm happy to be a guest in their territory. Uh, but I greet you with all of my ancestors uh, and welcome you here today. Uh, it was such an honor to co-edit this book uh, with Catherine and Brooke and John and have the honor of, of curating um, a section dedicated to Indigenous authors and contributors and leaders such as Rowan White and Rachel Wolf Graham. 
and you're in for a treat um, to hear them share their beautiful stories and read some passages from their books. And I want to first frame and give a little context for the seventh fire. Uh, for us Anishinaabe people in also Ottawa or um, Odawa, as well as Potawatomi, the Three Fires Confederacy that Catherine mentioned, we have a profound and deep relationship to this concept of seventh fire. And seven is a sacred number for us for many reasons and for many nations and tribes. Um, and for us, it refers to our seven ancestor teachings, which is a whole other thing I won't get into now, um, but it's a very profound teaching for us. And the seventh fire prophecy really refers to a historic, geographic, physical, and metaphysical journey and migration uh, that our ancestors took from the salty waters of the beautiful East Coast next to Rowan's territory, Mohawk territory, when we were over there, um, all the way to the sweet waters of the Great Lakes, um, where we found the food that grows upon the water and um, landed in our new homeland as Anishinaabe people and all the different bands around the Great Lakes on both the U.S. and Canadian sides of that border, uh, and again with the Potawatomi and the Ottawa. And so for us, uh, we had teachers and prophets come to us at these different fires. So the fires represent real physical fires where we put down our villages, we put down our bundles, uh, we went out and gathered our berries, and we made new homelands all up and down what is known the St. Lawrence Seaway or St. Lawrence River, um, where the fresh water meets the salt water. And so our people migrated one by one, and these prophets gave us different messages along the way. This seventh fire prophecy tells in the third and fourth fires when the white-skinned people came from the east and created havoc for our forests and our fur, fur friends and all of the different elements of the land. And so this was a time of great disruption, what we would call the impacts and ruptures of colonization, uh, including relocation, reservation, um, the social ills that came from that, the trauma that came from that. And then we get to a period in the seventh fire, and really we're kind of, it's debatable. There's many interpretations to when this happened in linear time and geographic places. Um, but some would say, including uh, the wonderful Rowan, uh, I mean, um, Robin Kimmerer, that we are kind of at the edge now of the seventh fire. And that's when my generation, I would include Rowan and Rachel in this generation, where we could have really just assimilated, you know, into mainstream, that path was a well-worn path of assimilation. Um, but our traditions were too strong and too powerful that we remembered to remember. We turned around, we looked back, and we said we must recover our languages, our stories, our seeds, our foods, our heritage. We must piece together and recover from all of those impacts of colonization and really create kind of a new people in a modern era. And so this seventh fire is in motion, in trans motion, and is developing. And we are, you know, it's part of the revitalization movement of indigenous peoples uh, in Turtle Island, and I would say worldwide. But 
then we're about to light the eighth fire. And this is our youth. This would be our children and grandchildren when a new people will emerge based on peace and, and brotherhood and sisterhood and kindness and sustainability and regeneration. But we are at a crossroads. And many people have been talking about this crossroads. Uh, it's a very powerful time. Indigenous people cannot move forward on the good green path of the future, a healthy future, without the white-skinned people, without our allies, without the descendants of the colonists. So we're at this crossroads between a good green path and a scorched earth path, one that is broken with shards. As uh, Eddie Benton Benai, wonderful Ojibwe knowledge keeper, articulated in his book, um, it is going to be a reckoning um, between these two paths. And we really need to acknowledge um, the power of solidarity and working together to light the eighth fire for a sustainable future for all of life. Otherwise, the path does not look very good. And so in our book, we have beautiful teachers like Rowan and Rachel and so many others speaking. We also have um, youth, many indigenous mixed race youth who are um, sharing their stories of what a good future could look like. So I just wanted to share that context of what this concept of seventh fire uh, means for us and for this book. And I now wanna introduce an incredible new film, one of Rowan White's gorgeous creations, Seed Mother. And this was a collaboration that Rowan did, and she can share more about it herself. But we're going to see the first couple minutes of it. And then, Rowan, you can share with us about the inspiration uh, of the great um, introduction to the film Seed Mother, um, Bringing Seeds Home. And Kira, with that, we can start the first animated piece. Flight expands to Highland Pangea, stands scout woman tree alive. Wow, wow. I would now like to invite Rowan White to please introduce yourself, dear, and share a little bit about the inspiration for that extraordinary first clip of a longer video. And uh, you can find it at the NAFSA, Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance website. Welcome, everyone. It's so lovely to be in circle with you and to... Um, 
to hear the powerful words that my sister Melissa shared with us to really set, um, you know, set the stage and really call in um, the ancestors, the ancestors of all of the lands from which we are joining from, um, as well as, um, you know, all of you who are attending here. Um, I spoke to you in my um, indigenous language of Gunyatgeha, um, Mohawk, and I just introduced you uh, myself in, in the way that we would. Um, my uh, it, Mohawk name is Ganyatahawe, which means she carries snow because I was born on the first snow of the year in a big blizzard. And I'm Snipe Clan uh, from a small community um, called Akwasasne, which is a Mohawk community that actually is a border community, half of our communities in Canada, um, so-called Canada, and half is in so-called United States. So we have an international border that runs through our community. And I'm a seed keeper uh, and a mentor at Sierra Seeds, which is our home farm here um, in the lands of the Nisanon and the Maidu people in the Sierra foothills of California. And I'm also the founder um, of the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, which is a, a program and project of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance. Um, I'm currently on a creative sabbatical because I'm working on a series of books and uh, mixed media um, projects um, somewhat similar to what we just saw. So uh, Seed Mother Coming Home was a beautiful collaboration that had been incubating and, 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 and sort of gestating for a while, uh, which is to really illuminate and um, be a compelling love poem for the seed rematriation movement and the role that seeds, our sacred seeds and our sacred food um, play in our dignified resurgence as indigenous peoples. And they have been our um, ancestors and our mentors and our guides, taking us through a very unconventional rites of passage in this current time um, and have been calling us to heal, um, to uh, revitalize our culture and language. And so that is a seven minute clip. And I think we have bigger visions of that unfurling into a much bigger um, series of narratives. Um, but we did also include, in addition to the film, I just wanna mention on the Native Seed Pod, there's a bunch of wonderful interviews with some of the um, indigenous women farmers who we've been collaborating with. So um, yeah, feel free to go head over there and check that out. Um, but I'll go ahead and pass it over to Rachel. She can introduce herself as well. Tēnā tato itifare. Um, greetings to the house. Ingamonga fakahi to our mountains that stand proud before us. Ingamuana atahua to our beautiful oceans. Inga awa wakatere tanifa to our rivers and tanifa navigating them. Kimihi kamihi kia koto o mato tupuna. We acknowledge you, our ancestors. To our diverse peoples, to our collective mana, to our collective voices, greetings to you all. We are inspired to be here together with you. Tihei Modi Ora. Kia ora, everybody. Um, my name is Rachel Manganui Wolf Graham. I'm very, very honoured to be here um, with you all, and um, particularly to be invited by a dear friend and colleague, Melissa, to be part of this um, presentation. And I'm also here on behalf of myself and my co-author um, in this book, in this book chapter that we wrote for Melissa, for this book, um, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Um, Shelley Spiller. So Shelley is a, is a dear friend and colleague of mine who I've worked with for a number of years in Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
Um, so very happy to be here. My name, uh, I come from many mountains, rivers and hours across the Pacific Ocean. Um, I'm connected to uh, many tribes in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, Te Apodi from the northern part of New Zealand. Um, Te Whakatoa here from the Bay of Plenty area of New Zealand. Um, and Ngai Takoto also from the northern part of New Zealand. Um, I've been involved in many um, Māori and tribal um, activities over the years, and I'm a lead claimant in New Zealand. We're going through some many, many tribal claimant, uh, uh, reclamations at the moment um, with the government, thousands of tribes actually in settlement with the Crown um, as a result of colonisation. I'm lead claimant on um, a, tr a tribal claimant, a whānau claimant, um, ngā, ngā whānau of Rangihairipo, which is from my Whakatohia side, and also for the Māori economy. Um, in my day job, <laughs> I work as an academic. I'm, a, I'm an Associate Dean for Māori and Associate Dean for Pacific in the University of Auckland Business School. Um, and I've taught um, Māori and Indigenous uh, economies of wellbeing for a number of years and did, have done a lot of research in this space. And also, um, I've taught a lot of, 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 in sustainability and, uh, and responsible business and uh, business ethics. So a sort of multiple, um, you know, <laughs> uh, things I bring to, the, for the, bring to the table, really. Wonderful. Thank you both for bringing your ancestors and your work, your rich, uh, abundant work to us now. And I want to invite Rowan again to just reflect a little bit more on the inspiration and where the story comes from in that beautiful animated piece. And uh People, uh, your beautiful piece in the book talks about seeds as ancestors. And when I quote you and, or mention that to folks, non-native folks especially, they say, oh, seeds are like ancestors. It's a metaphor. And I say, no, it's not a metaphor. Seeds are ancestors. Um, so I'd love to hear you share a bit more about that and also weave in the concept that I think you both write about so eloquently, the concept of cosmogenealogy, meaning that we are not only genealogical related to our human family line, but to um, cosmological um, other, other relatives, including seeds and stars. So if you could start us off, Rowan, with some reflections on that beautiful story and your relationship with seeds as ancestors, that would be lovely. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, what we were referencing, and, and Pierre Fay is the um, musician in the background, and you can sort of hear the creation story being alluded to in her lyrics, um, that was inspired by the Haudenosaunee creation story. Um, and what I like to center and remind us all is that we all descend from people who had an understanding of what the original instructions and the creation stories are and those creation stories never ended, right? Like they're still unfurling in real time as we speak. Um, and the piece that I wrote for the book really talks about um, my, my, um, the honor and privilege that I have of being a farmer and a seed keeper and how um, the seeds and the foods in the land have really helped me to come into a better understanding of what it means to be a responsible descendant um, here now and also a good future ancestor. Um, in my coming back to the land and seed um, after you know, many years of disconnection through acculturation, genocide, boarding schools, all of that, I began to come back home to this understanding of my relationship, my kinship with 
the foods and seeds that fed our ancestors since time immemorial, and understanding that we are literally lineal descendants of the foods and seeds that feed us today, and the way that they interweave into our ceremonies and our rituals and our everyday life, um, and, and centering this idea um, that since the dawning of time, we literally are related to them. And I'd love to read just a short passage from my essay um, in the book to just sort of illuminate that. Um, and then I would love to uh, speak into that a little more. I say, as a Mohawk woman, I say these seeds have been with us since the beginning of time. When I look into this basket full of corn we are planting, I am reminded our creation stories never ended. They unfurl into a continuous cycle of creation that inspires renewal each new day. These seeds are an intergenerational gift from grandmother to granddaughter since time immemorial. As it's been told to me by my elders, the seeds are a reflection of the people. When the seeds are weak and struggling, it means our communities and nation, nations are struggling. When our seeds are strong, it means our nations and communities are strong and in good health. These sacred and precious seeds carry our story sprouting alive into new form to nourish us in many ways. Our beautiful seeds are deeply connected to lineage and specific lands of origin. These foods and seeds are our mirror, our reflection. Their life is our life. We are intimately intertwined with their well-being and we are bound into a reciprocal relationship with seeds that extend past living memory. These agreements between us and our plant relatives are imprinted into our cellular memory. And what I want to end with there, which is that the depiction in that um, the animation is that quite literally our original woman, our first ancestor who fell from the sky world into this world in Turtle Island, carrying a baby in her belly, birthing that baby from her belly, and um, eventually um, that her daughter, um, becoming impregnated with twins uh, who were sort of birthing, you know, this original part of our creation story. Um, when she died in childbirth, birthing those two original twins who represent sort of the duality and the tension um, that we um, are in relationship to here um, on Turtle Island. We actually, um, the original foods sprouted from her body, the corn from her breasts, the beans from her hands, the squash from her belly button, um, the potatoes from her legs and sunflowers from her feet, the tobacco from her head and the strawberries from her heart. And so literally they came from her flesh and blood and bones as a gift to her descendants that would feed and nourish us from here on out. And so quite literally the foods came from the body of our original ancestors. Um, and so that is the relationship that we are bound in, and that is the kinship that we tend to, not only in theory and this idea, but quite literally when we are planting seeds in the ground. And so my essay, I talk a lot about, so a lot of visuals and, and, and ideas of, of my role as ancestor as being someone who quite literally is nourishing those whose faces I might not ever know, um, but who, who's... I have a responsibility to tend to their well-being. And these seeds become sort of the, the, the ones that live through the generations beyond our own physical life to help us fulfill that responsibility. Um, so it was a great honor to, 
to participate and, and to share that. Um, so hopefully that helps bring some context to the animations. Mm. Gorgeous, Rowan. Thank you so much and for sharing from your beautiful chapter. I just love it. And sharing a little bit more of the context of the gorgeous animation. And it's all of those relatives um, in different traditions, certainly your Haudenosaunee are also clan relations, right? The, the turtle and, and all the different um, animals and the seeds. So it was just great to see that it's, it's an embodied kinship of ancestors um, really animated in that story. So thank you for, for beautifully demonstrating that. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rowan White, Rachel Wolfgram, and host Melissa K. Nelson. Rachel, I would love to bring your voice in and some of your teachings from your Maori and Tongan tradition. Um, I've learned so much from you and your sister and your family about this profound concept that you write about in your chapter of uh, Faka Papa. And it's, it's about genealogy and lineage, but it seems to be about so much more. There's just layers and layers of richness. And when I ever hear you or other Maori folks speak, in no matter what the context, universities, business, uh, grassroots, etc., you really bring up this concept of whakapapa and how central it is to your identity. So if you could uh, share a bit more and elucidate more about that rich concept for us, I think that would be lovely. That's great. Um, kia ora and thank you, Melissa. I have a few slides with pictures that I think might help to animate the conversation a bit. So I'll just share those. Um, yes. So it is a, it's a really um, incredible uh, uh, you know, task to talk to people about whakapapa. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a very, it's, we can hear it resonate actually across all of our Indigenous communities. It's not sort of something that's very unique to to Maori, but all, all of all of the all of those that are involved in a movement to um, create, you know, to recognise the sacred ecology uh, which surround us, actually, that Papa resonates across those voices. I've just chosen a couple of quotes here um, just to move us into the conversation. Um, but first of all, there are sort of different ways of thinking about Papa, but it is really about relationships, about connecting and layering those relationships across time and space. Um, so there's an element of eternity to the concept of whakapapa. And it's, it is, as, as you've said, Melissa, it's also a cosmological um, narratives. And we use these to connect ourselves to the past, present, future, and to all of the environments in which we find ourselves. So a couple of quotes, one from an expert, one of my own, um, Tohunga, a scientist, Māori scientist, who's passed on now, but has left us with wonderful legacies. Um, he says, every living thing has a pathway of growth. Listen to the voice of the dawn maiden heralding the coming of the sun. Feel the warm rains of spring as Hine Kohu lays a korowai over her mother, Papa Tuanuku. Karongo i te ihi o te rā, kahomai So, this is um, this is a, a reference to Papa Tuanuku, who was our Earth Mother. Um, the name that we give, similar to your story, Rowan, but um, we give the name Papa Tuanuku to her. So the second quote is another one that's quite interesting. It comes from Max Dalbrook, who's a Nobel Prize winner and considered the founder of molecular biology. It's interesting too. It says any living cell carries with it the experiences of a billion years 
of experimentation by its ancestors. So this is really interesting because we've talked about um, moving into the future and even things like transhumanism in our conversations, even artificial intelligence. And what is, when we think about the future, how do we relate to whakapapa in terms of the, the futures that we're moving into? So it's something that, it's a, a, you know, we can, we're using it um, to help us to think about a whole raft of things. So uh, this is a, a picture of a Poe, one of our, um, my brother-in-law, Wikuki Kingi, who, who Melissa had mentioned, was a tohung of Kairo on this, and my sister Tanya, who, who Melissa knows, is also um, linked with the project, as am I. But this is a really cool um, sort of depiction uh, of, of our links to our ancestors, and Whakapapa is 100% in all of this. It, so Whakapapa inspires many, many things, not only our rituals and our engagement with each other on marae and hui, um, it, it's expressed in waiata, in song, in dance, um, in carving. So it's really something that animates and, and, and encourages us to express ourselves in many ways. So we use it. So these, they're the pair there, uh, one of the couples on the po there, Papa Tuanuku, Mother Earth, and Ranginui Sky Father. And so we use these, the Papa as a genealogical recital to remember, to renew our spiritual, ancestral, terrestrial cosmological, social, political, collective and individual relationships. So you can see it's completely embedded in that and it does um, relate to many things. And another way in which we think about whakapapa is this idea that we are the environment. So the saying, sayings like ko aho te moana, ko te moana ko aho, I am the ocean, the ocean is me. So we don't, um, so whakapapa helps us to understand that we are in relation and I know that this resonates again with uh, with the co-papa in the book, um, and and you know with the corridor that you've that you've been talking about, um, Melissa. So Papa isn't just about genealogical um, uh, narration, but it also motiv motivates us and inspires us to actual action. So it's because we are the environment, because our ancestors are the mountains as well as our social connections, it inspires us to protect and be active agents in making changes to care for our lands, to protect and care for our oceans and waterways, to care for our livelihoods, for our future generations, and for all of those species um, who are our relations and who we share our home with. So I hope that, you know, that's given you a sense of stuff. You know, we are, whakapapa is we belong, therefore we are. And so when we do our identity, when we share our whakapapa in terms of the social dimensions of whakapapa, it's just one aspect. It's just one way of showing that we are connected and we belong before we are. I hope that's been helpful. Beautiful. So layered and, and rich and lovely. I, I loved your images as well. Um, kia ora, miigwech. Uh, Rowan, do you have any reflections on um, Rachel's beautiful sharing there about um, the Maori concept? Sure. Yeah, I just think um, it's so helpful to have a taproot, right? To have this understanding. And I think what I would like to invite, I guess, the attendees as well, is to be thinking about, you know, Rachel and myself descend from people who have rich storied cosmologies and narratives and cosmic genealogies. But I think the work of the time is to remember that we all descend from people who have this understanding. And the invitation is to rehydrate that, is to find pathways. So for me, um, the pathways that led me to rehydrate this um, understanding and this knowledge 
um, that was very violently um, stripped from my family through colonization um, and acculturation. Um, the rehydration of that was through restoring kinship and relationship to seeds and land. And all of us have like a different way in, right? But we all have to find that way in so that we can um, reweave ourselves back into that tapestry that Rachel so beautifully speaks of, that we are all um, interdependent. We're all in relationship to each other as humans, but also to, to the multiplicity of, of beings seen and unseen. I'll say that as well. There's a lot of unseen beings who we are in relationship to. And so food and seed can be a really um, kinesthetic, somatic way of finding our way home because those foods go into our body and they enliven us and they, they, they help us to remember in ways that our brain can't, right? It, it, it helps us to understand um, that way. And so that's the invitation, I think, or the call to action in this circle today. All of you have come here for your various reasons. The calling is to, to figure out what is that pathway home for you and your small circle of relatives so that we can, at this crossroads, as um, Melissa talked about, that we can move forward on that green path and remembering and rehydrating all of our in indigeneity um, and then those stories that so desperately want to be tended and cared for those beings who want to be um, in kinship because we are actually in kinship. I mean, that's what Rachel was just talking about. It's not that we aren't in kinship with all these things. It's just that many people have forgotten that we're in kinship and we act otherwise, right? We act in ways that destroy and disrespect and, and harm and hurt. And so what are the ways in which we can enliven our understanding of the kinship the web of kinship that we're held in each and every day, um, I think is the, is the calling of this time that we're in. Absolutely. It is the calling of our time. Thank you for that passionate, you know, invitation for all people to remember, to remember, and, you know, that we do have these traditional knowledges and these kinships uh, within us. And it's a matter, I love your emphasis on the, the verb rehydrating. It's such an important way of thinking about rehydrating those seeds within us. So thank you, Rowan. And I, I want to get a little more pragmatic for all of us. It's pragmatic to us, but it's sometimes harder for uh, non-natives who have, you know, forgotten or have been affected by the cultural amnesia of the Eurocentric paradigm to forget this kind of connection that all humans, it's our birthright to have this connection to all of life. Um, but one impediment that kind of makes folks feel like this crossroads, we're kind of heading off the precipice. And I think Mother Earth right now with climate change is trying to shake us up. She's got a fever. She's hot. You know, in some places there's flooding. In other places there's drought. There's fires. There's earthquake. Um, we're at a time of tumult and change. And again, that was prophesized in our seventh fire prophecy and in many prophecies around the world for many different traditions. But one of the biggest um, barriers, I think, is our um, current economic system, the way that our economic system has been so based on extraction and commodification, whether it's our seeds or our foods or each other, life itself with genetic engineering. And I know that both of you write very powerfully and eloquently about the economies of well-being through your work, Rachel, with sustainable economies and with Maori businesses. And Rowan, with you, with you know the trade networks of 
seeds and foods across vast distances without any monetary exchange, but the exchange of, of seeds and breath and bundles. So if you could both speak to about this emergence, a re-emergence, if you will, rehydrating our economies of well-being to again create this path um, that is a positive and a green one rather than one of further extraction and destruction. So who'd ever like to jump into that, um, please feel free. Rachel, if you wouldn't mind that you speak so beautifully to it. Yes, and you wrote about it too, Rachel. So yes, about your economies of well-being work, I think is so critical to this question. Uh, kia ora Back to Rowan's uh, idea of rehydration of the seeds. I absolutely love that too. Um, when you asked me to write this chapter with Shelley, um, my, my colleague and friend, I, the first thing I thought of was my, one of my ancestors, is, her name is Waimirirangi. Waimirirangi, which means sweet waters from heaven. And so when Rowan's saying rehydration of the seeds, I, thought straight, I was inspired straight away. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Economies of well-being is something that um, we've been working on for a while. In in, um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, it's up for, it, surprisingly, uh, uh, we have our, our government, our, our new leaders um, in, in the Jacinda Ardern Labour government has actually brought in um, budgets and they've, they've called them well-being budgets. And, and, you know, so the way that they talk about well-being in the mainstream, though, is slightly different from how we might think about well-being from a Māori and Indigenous point of view. So essentially, in our economies of well-being, we turn everything around. We don't focus on GDP. We don't focus on gross national product. Um, we don't focus on those all of those quantitative measures which governments rely on to, um, you know, to boost their e economic, um, you know, power bases. But we actually look at economies of well-being, centering it with order, O-R-A. Order is is basically the Māori word for well-being, and it's really powerful because all of our words, all of our language, it's how order is health, Māori order is well-being, manawa order is, is you know, like resilience and hope. So order, and thank you, um, yeah, for putting that up, well-being. Um, so, yes, yeah, so all of our, all of the way in which we engage with each other in business and, and so forth is going to be centred around our values, um, such as uh, putting order at the centre of it. So, yeah, it's a nice way to sort of switch it up and not be thinking about economies in the same way, um, the take-make-and-waste paradigm that has been consistent over the last, you know, 150 and 160 years through, and, you know, so, yeah. Oh, Magwitch, thank you, Rachel. And Rowan, if you can please add and share to that with your great work with um, food networks and, and trade networks. I think we're, we're at a time where, um, you know, many have been indoctrinated by the capitalist narrative so much that people, I think, can conceive of the end of the world happening before the end of capitalism, right? Like we actually think, like people think that way. Um, and I think... Um, what we need to understand is that that's a manufactured system of scarcity. Um, and what we understand from our um, original teachings and our, our indigenous um, ecological understandings is that we live inside of a world that is actually centered around an economy of abundance that, you know, and the seeds, I'm a, 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 an apprentice of, of the seeds themselves. And they show us that one seed becomes a hundred and then a hundred becomes a thousand and so on and so forth. And if you look 
at the natural world, there's a constant generosity or benevolence that's happening, a caretaking, uh, you know, uh, an interdependence of, of this economy of well-being. And I think, again, that's why this work with folks like Rachel, yourself, Melissa, and many others in this book is getting us normalizing the indigenous narratives of this economy of abundance and well-being because it's only been for a short, relatively short amount of time in the, you know, in the span of, of human existence that this cancerous, malignant um, scarcity mentality, um, economic mentality meant to control, um, you know, wealth to a very few um, has been in effect. And, and quite honestly, it's only going to go a, a very short uh, amount forward until we see mass extinction. Um, and so we're at a point where the cultural work of storytelling, of the youth being involved in helping us to, to again, rehydrate and share forth this, this understanding because it's all in our blood and our bones. When you begin to talk about this and work with it, it's not a foreign concept. In fact, it's, it's something that we know so deeply, every single one of us. And so, you know, I see that when I reintroduce seeds and food and growing and caretaking in the land back with students of mine so quickly. It's like, it's a remembering quite literally. It's like putting the pieces back together. And I think we're at a time where uh, many people feel um, the calling of the seeds and the land um, and, and to begin to restory um, and reimagine um, the future um, and, and what a vibrant, um, you know, uh, relational kin-centric uh, food system and, and, you know, food landscape can look like. I think it's possible. So. Lovely, lovely. And um, your work with uh, the Seed Keepers and the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and, and the Mohawk Nation and so many, I mean, you are in the, biz the business, the good business of producing food. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about some of the, the foods that you produce and share in your various communities? And we're literally, again, there's a tapestry of trade networks that we always call them kinship routes, right? You can call them trade routes, but they're really kinship routes um, by which seeds, foods, bundles, all kinds of things pass along. And so what can we be doing with this next generation that is so um, excited and energized and inspired? How can we reintroduce and revitalize this concept of kinship routes and begin to formulate an understanding of regenerative indigenous economics in ways that are restorative and um, regenerative as opposed to extractive. And, uh, and I think the brilliance of the young people coming forward in this time are, are capable of receiving that call um, and, 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 and envisioning that into the future. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to bring us into the concept again, a little bit of, of time and indigenous concepts of time versus this kind of linear trajectory of the Eurocentric, you know, historical timeline. Um, both of you are speaking so much and the whole book, um, our ancestors book really reflects on um, ancestral lineage, ancestral knowledge, how it's not just in the past, 
how it's very much living and dynamic in the moment. Our ancestors are with us right now. Um, and how that's so much a part of envisioning um, indigenous futures. And so there's this whole new realm of young people envisioning indigenous futures using science fiction and technology and creativity and I know you both do multiple creative things, painting and film and animation and sculpture. And, and so I want you to reflect a little bit on how your ancestors are present with you, with us, and how we hear them when we're engaged in creative, non-cognitive or non-linear activities. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your creative process and how that connects you with your ancestors in the living moment. Again, a really amazing question. <laughs> I think, um, you know, we, we sit here and we are surrounded by our ancestors, both our family and our environment, and um, all of our inspiration really comes from both of those things and all of our creative works. And so when, as, as Rowan was speaking, as I said, Waimirirangi is, a, is one of my ancestors who I often reflect back on. And you have to remember that our family ancestors, they, they grew in really complex times as well. Sometimes they grew up in environments where it wasn't easy for things to sprout. Uh, my, my ancestors, you know, they traversed vast oceans uh, across the Pacific to settle in Aotearoa, New Zealand. They had to create from scratch new um, homes. They had to sow new seeds for them to live. They had to, you know, they, but they were, you know, they were adventurers and innovators and traders. These are my direct um, line, my direct ancestors in the family sense. So over time, when they observed the power and nature of the environment, they accorded it with divinity. So that's what our ancestors did. They observed, as scientists, they observed how powerful it was, how the, you know, how the sun, you know, nourished and how the rains nourished um, out the environment so that they could have food. They actually observed over hundreds and hundreds and and all of our ancestors, some thousands of years, to get to the point where, hey, we create a cosmological community of divine beings that are reflective of what they've been seeing on the planet. And this is our, our way of connecting. And this continues to inspire us throughout time. We just, as you said, Rowan, uh, have to remember, have to help others remember their journey and the power of that and why they did these things and why we need to keep on um, into the future with the same corridor, with the same thinking. Mm. Agreed. And I think in some ways what we have to, um, I guess, another invitation is to, in a time of a lot of noise, right, like a lot of stimulation and a lot of noise coming from a very disconnected, um, like, story, right? There is a story, you know, in capitalism and in um, the world we live in, um, but it's a very disjointed sort of linear story. Um, but again, um, as Rachel so eloquently talked about, the earth around us is held inside of our bodies and we can resource ourselves um, in order to remember. Um, and so ways in which we can quiet ourselves and create spaces for um, intuitive reception, right? The ways in which we can continue to listen to the messages of our ancestors um, and those being seen and unseen in this time that can help animate us and guide us into that 
more abundant future is critical. And I think in a lot of ways, the powers that be want to um, get us so, uh, you know, so much noise that we can't listen and hear to the, 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 our intelligences that we have inside of our body, the ancestral ones, and how do we tap into an understanding of deep time? And the, the seeds have told me, have taught me that, and I'm just a humble apprentice of them, is that they tell me that, you know, when they sprout into being now, they're stitching together past, present, and future in that one little bundle of, of seed. And so there's all sorts of teachers that can help us to understand sinking into that bigger, deep time and resourcing ourselves from those ancestors. We all have ancestors who did great and beautiful things. And we have ancestors who lived in complex times who did things that were, were difficult to, to reckon with. But how do we serve as best we can to metabolize and turn the compost heap of past failures in this time and do whatever it is we can. And we are not going to be able to solve it all, but each and every one of us doing a little bit of that work inside ourselves to find that restoration of that kinship and balance together in community and a collective effort will send a, a powerful ripple. And I think that's the key is that we're all doing this together, right? We're not individual islands. We're all trying to do this together and, and it's complex, um, but I think we need to remember um, that we, we do the earth of our bodies, the rivers that run through our veins and all that they carry and hold, we have access to that. So whatever it is you can do, like in my chapter, I speak about the sanctuary of the garden and how the garden has helped me to reconnect to ancestors, past, present, and future, um, you know, to, to, to be animated by them in the ways that they would like that. And so whatever it is that is your sanctuary, whether it's in your sculpture studio or doing your art, like whatever it is that brings you into that place of being of good mind. We talk about that in our Haudenosaunee teachings as being of good mind, which is to be thinking about the ways in which our actions impact um, others and not just other humans, but the, the vast tapestry of relationships. Mm, so beautiful. I did a um, summer internship uh, with Native Sky Watchers, and it was all about Indigenous star knowledge. And it came up over and over again how, just like you were saying, that noise, how, you know, it, in the urban areas, even though I love urban areas too, it's it's all good. It's all diverse and filled with life, um, many different types of life. But when you're in um, urban areas with so much light pollution, you cannot see the stars. And so we don't have a connection to the deep time because when you're looking up the stars, you're looking up at your ancestors in my cosmology, the Milky Ways, the river of souls, and in many traditions. So you're looking at your ancestors and they're beaming on you at night. And so it's harder sometimes to connect with that deep time because we're not observing the stars as well. But there's the, the macro and there's the micro. And I love what the film did with your and Mateo's great work identifying the micro word when you look at a seed it's like its own universe it's it's a whole universe and you're looking at your ancestors again at the micro level and so that time in the garden to look at the seeds and and to awaken the senses um, it's a decolonial act 
to um, really remove the noise of, you know, technology and the busyness of, you know, modern dominant society and corporate capitalism and to just awaken again. It's such, as you said so beautifully, Rowan, such a natural birthright if we just slow down enough. And that's why the slow food movement has really caught attention too, because, you know, slowing down and listening to the seeds and to the foods in our garden and creating those sanctuaries for us externally and internally um, is such deep medicine for our time. And, and the young people that I am blessed to teach um, in various contexts are hungry for this ancestral knowledge, deeply hungry for it. So when we did this Guardians of the Waters Youth Program, which we'll talk about next week uh, with Kaylina and Nicola, um, so many young people were just deeply connected with um, the plants and with the seeds and even coined a new term, plancestors, <laughs> because they realized plants were their ancestors and it just awakened this whole other connection to um, the natural world and to get out of the isolation of technology. So thank you. Beautiful. I think we are almost at time, but I would like to invite you each to share anything else you would like to from um, this concept of seventh fire um, or a reading from either your chapter in the book or anything new that you're working on, a poem or um, anything you'd like to contribute as kind of a, a final word for this conversation. Well, I can read a short passage. There's a, a wonderful here, and it says, um, Now as a mother who sings the sacred seed songs to her children in a humble act of keeping the ancestral traditions alive, I think of all those who came before me who endured such incredible adversities so that I could stand here today with seed corn in hand and the love of thousands beating in my heart. I whisper to my daughter, Water that seed planted deep inside the earth that is your own body. A tiny seed that sings an achingly beautiful song of remembrance, resistance, resilience, redemption, reconciliation. It was this powerful seed song that kept our grandmothers upright, who whispered to them to get up amidst the sorrow to do what needed to be done to tend the earth and feed the children. It was these melodies that guided our grandfathers under a sea of stars as they made their way into new lands to protect the young. This map is written in the seeds and in the stars and the waters and the earth. This song is now your heart beating fiercely and promise to uphold the agreements to feed the sacred hungers of time. Mm. Mm. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Mm. So beautiful. So beautiful. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Rowan White, Rachel Wolfgram, and host Melissa K. Nelson. So that's the reminder for all of you is that your heart is beating in promise right now to those ancestors seen and unseen. And so perhaps you could walk away from the circle and carve out a little time and a little space um, to sit with that and to, to, to listen to those agreements that are there they may be faint. It may be hard to listen and hear for them, um, but they are there in the earth of your body. And that's the prayer I have for each and every one of you today. Mm. Oh, oh. Mm. Rachel, 
So just here briefly, uh, in terms of the question, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? I'll just take a little bit from my book too. How would you like to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as curious, an eternal learner, an explorer, and an adventurer. What traditions do you want to continue? I want to continue the traditions from my ancestors that recognize and value the intelligence of nature, to live with respect and care for our natural environments and love and care for our whanau. What kind of cycles do you want to break? Cycles that disconnect us from our environment that are driven by fear and led by violence. What new systems do I want to initiate for those yet to be born? I want my children, grandchildren and beyond to be part of a movement of good, for peace, for unity and aroha. So my kaupapa as to what kind of ancestors do you want to be is one that is dedicated to the pursuit of these things that leaves ancestral footprints like those of my own ancestors that tell a story of curiosity, exploration and adventure, but done in the spirit of humility, unity, peace, wisdom and aroha. Mm-hmm. Aroha. Oh, thank you. And maybe say what aroha means for those who don't know. Just just briefly. So aroha essentially means love. Mm-hmm. Related to the concept of aloha in Hawaii, but the much deeper layers of meaning to those words than yeah, Hawaiian Airlines will give you. <laughs> but thank you. That's beautiful words. Oh my goodness, such such luscious teachings for our times and for uh, honoring our ancestors and future generations. Um, yes, there is the book. Move it. Al- yeah, it's such a gorgeous book. Christy Belcourt um, did the lovely cover. A wonderful. Métis artist, activist, um, real community leader. Uh, I will now address some of our questions um, that we have from the audience and the participants. Uh, Dr. Kathleen Whitmire shares how she is fascinated by the concept of economies of well-being and how we are so desperately in need of that in the United States. Agreed. Yes, absolutely. And in the world, how can we contribute to bringing this into being? Hmm. I love that idea. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I think it's a fabulous, uh, it's about time. Because I I did a big project with, for four years, for Ngāpāya Te Maramatanga, which is, um, you know, our Māori Research Centre and colleagues of mine, Shelley and Robert and Ella Henry and others. And and it's about time that we actually did craft a book together on economies of well-being from our Indigenous worldviews, because I think that'll be incredibly powerful and it'll, it'll make people sit up and think, actually, yeah, there are other ways of thinking about economies than the way, the traditional ways that we've been thinking about them and doing them over the last 150 to 60 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share a picture because I, the picture will maybe help um, eliminate my answer to this um, and this beautiful picture. And I think what I want to say alongside this picture is that um, an economy of wellness is led by women like this, um, who, who, who cradle squashes um, as, as they are babies um, in our villages and in our communities. And so for those of you who are wondering, how can we move in the direction of these economies of wellness and well-being um, and nourishment is to center leadership with women like this. So in your own community, being 
in connection with indigenous leaders and resourcing them and, and platforming them and uplifting them and empowering them. They don't need people to speak on their behalf. They need people and allies to work alongside them to uh, resource them. That means land back. It means rematriation of land. It means um, you know monies and resources coming their way. It means advocacy and, and, and uplifting their voices in the many different local, regional, and national political realms. Um, and so that's where I think we are coming to this reckoning in the United States. I know we've been in a lot of conversation and a lot of tension points, um, but how can we center um, indigenous black bodies of culture um, because they have a more recent and more um, emergent remembering of their indigeneity, which can begin to craft these economies of well-being. So. Um, this is a picture from uh, when we rematriated these squash seeds back to the Taos Pueblo, um, back into the hands of the women of the village. Beautiful. I would just, in alignment with both of you, I would just add too that um, really honoring, you know, economy just means care of your home, care of your household. We need to take back that word. It's the same root as ecology. It is about our home. How do we reclaim taking care of our home in our own household, with our families, in our community, and that to um, restore economies of well-being, we have to work locally. We really have to understand the impacts and the carbon footprint of eating apples from New Zealand or buying things that are purchased, you know, made to 5,000 miles away, that is not sustainable. And that to embrace local economies is to support local farmers and to support local indigenous women, like Rowan said, with resourcing and making space and opening up spaces and making connections. So just wanted to reinforce both of your points. I can just add one more thing yes. to what you're saying, which is that I also think we need a new lexicon. I think that so many times we have words like, for instance, people will say that I'm, I do food systems work. And I always say, I hate the word food systems. That's not actually what I do. Um, that's not the work that I do. The work that we do is restoring relational concentric food landscapes, right? We're reweaving that back in because the word itself, food systems, is from a cosmology and a worldview that breaks everything apart into these separate you know, cogs in a machine kind of thing. And so I think there's also an invitation there to think about what are the new, what is the new lexicon? Maybe it is bringing indigenous concepts and words as Rachel has brought to this conversation and normalizing them and bringing them into this place that, of words that um, envelop and embody a bigger concept than English can, right? English is the, the, the language of our, my ancestral enemies and is very limited, you know, and it, it reinforces a very constrictive um, worldview um, and understanding. And so I think we do need a new lexicon for how we're going to talk about what we're birthing into the future. Yes, so true. And Robin Kimmer talks about the grammar of animacy and really restoring a grammar of animacy. And, and you've been so um, wonderful in leading that too uh, with your work, Rowan, especially the concept of rehydrating is and how you're using that is just brilliant. Uh, and uh, let's move on to another question here. Kira, again, we go to the half past the hour? Yes. Okay, perfect. Just want to double check. We have some really uh, wonderful other questions here. Uh, let's see. Um, 
I think this one was a little interesting from Barbara. She said, do you have any cautions or thoughts on applying what we are discussing today without appropriating from others? Uh, How may we embrace our kinship while staying in our own cultural lanes, not ripping off other cultures in offensive ways? As Rowan said, we all have these things in our blood and in our bones. And I say as earthlings, oh, it is our birthright as humans on the earth. Um, So we are all related, I believe, as one is one family but there must be guidelines for behavior and how we do this. Do you have any suggestions or cautionary tales for rehydrating your own ancestral wisdom without appropriating others? Great question, Barbara. Well, I think there's a piece there that I'd like to address, which is that there are many people who are of European um, descendants who live in the United States and and there are people who still live in their ancestral homelands in in other places. I think what we need to address and and, and reconcile with is this concept of white supremacy and cultural superiority, um, and and which has been plaguing the globe through colonization um, and and its various entities. Um, And so I think a lot of the work initially is doing that work internally to understand um, what are the forces of cultural superiority that perhaps took your own indigeneity from you um, and and perhaps whiteness in the way that it shows up in this, um, you know, superiority complex. Um, And there's amazing teachers like Resma Menikin who wrote My Grandmother's Hands, the ways that that racialized trauma lives in our bodies. And then we can go back to those, you know, again, finding your way home. You can find your way home. And many of you have, might have many homes. You might have many different people who, who you descend from. There may be a mixture of many different peoples. There have been instances throughout history where many different tribe, tribal entities or people or nations have lived in relative peace among each other, recognizing that diversity is the key to our resilience and that there wasn't a desire for the sort of monoculture or homogenization of everybody, but that each and every unique ethnic group or cultural people had their own um, place in the bigger bigger web. And so again, I think addressing the way in which um, white supremacy and um, cultural superiority lives in, in all of us and we're all complicit in, in some way, shape or form to, to that perpetuation of that. And then how do we kind of find our way home to those different hearths that hold that, 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 um, that information without bypassing. And that's the key part is a lot of people just want to go back to the way it was without confronting the harms and the violence of the way in which it shows up today. So you have to do that work of addressing your own racialized trauma um, and then find your way home to the places of indigeneity that reside inside your body and then bringing them forth in ways of integrity. And, and, and so that would be my piece. I don't have all the answers, but. Mm, beautiful response. Thank you. I, and related to that, I mean, to, to really analyze historically the social construction of whiteness and white supremacy, it, you know, when the early settlers came to the, you know, the early New World, our traditional Turtle Islands and invaded, you know, the Irish and the Italians and the Dutch and the English were not a unified people and they're still not unified, right? And so this whole idea of one 
and unified whiteness against the brown and red people. Um, Carl Anthony, the African-American architect and one of the founders of the environmental justice movements, has written very eloquently about that historical moment when there was this idea of creating a dominant whiteness um, to exploit and, and control and dominate um, the red, the indigenous, and the, the black um, folks who were brought here against their will. So a lot of work needs to be done here, but Rowan, you you addressed that so, so beautifully. Well, and there's another piece I'll just add and then maybe yeah. Rachel something to say to it, which is that we all have intergenerational trauma that we need to be composting and metabolizing, right? It, even the way in which whiteness has made some people of European descent want to chuck all of this beautiful cosmologies and things, um, you know, to, 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 reduce harm to themselves in whatever context. And so we all do need to be doing that work of metabolizing that intergenerational trauma um, and, and normalizing um, the, you know, indigenous um, worldviews, et cetera. Um, so it's the work that we all have to do. Yes, absolutely. Rachel, would you like to contribute to this question or answer? Uh, well, I, I think, um, I, I think it's just really important to stay authentic to yourself um, and, and be guided by by the words of your ancestors because people will come at you. I mean, we constantly are in battle with people, um, firms and businesses, uh, you know, exploiting our, our culture and so on and taking it in, in ways that we have no control over. Um, you know, unless you just want to end up fighting in courts all the time, which isn't really a, a great space to spend your energy, um, you know, um, Certainly. So, you, you, you know, we, I think be, being authentic and listening to the voices of your ancestors and, and letting them guide you, you'll be surprised how you can overcome so many things um, by, by, by being truly connected to your ancestors and, and, and to the environment. Listen to those voices that, you know, of, of, of the earth singing to us, um, also crying to us. You know, you'll be able to connect and you'll be able to hear them and they will guide you. Don't let other things um, interrupt and be noise around that. Just be truly authentic and listen, you know. Well, and there was a question I think I saw in the chat, which was talking about then how do we reconcile with those ancestors who did harmful things, right? That many, that there are people, I mean, even indigenous people have ancestors who did, you know, things that 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 created harm, you know, under complicated circumstances. Um, and so in some ways, how are we, those of you who descend from colonial peoples, how do you reckon with those ancestors who did um, perpetuate harm um, and violence? I think it's also recognizing um, that there's a, what harm was done to them that made them do that harm, right? And so there's this, there's this healing through the ages of recognizing that hurt people hurt people, right? That, 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 that perpetuation of trauma is like many generations old. And so how do we, it's, and it's not work that we're going to be able to do all ourselves. And if we tried to do it, we would go mad. You know, we would go, it, it's not the work of one human to do, but uh, we can do a little bit of work, right? We can do a little bit of that work of connecting with our ancestors who are freed from this earthly place and have a different perspective and understanding. And we can connect and communicate with them in ways that help the healing of that trauma that perpetuated these unspeakable acts and atrocities, um, you know, that, 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 that came through those avenues. And so, you know, that's going to be the long game of many generations of, um, of people working together um, to 
continue to metabolize the pain and trauma that created um, the violent culture that we see. And I always say it's like brokenhearted people. And so I say that when I, in my work, I say like genetically modified seeds is a form of violence, right? Towards our mothers. It's, it's, a, it's, it emerged out of rape culture um, is this like non-consensual modification of these seeds. And I always say it's brokenhearted people planted, planting brokenhearted seeds, right? It's a reflection, that same idea of these seeds being a reflection of each other. So the people in the United States are creating seeds that look like them, which are this like cut and spliced and tattered and they have no sense of who they are and where they come from. And so they create seeds that look like them, you know? And so it's part of that healing, you know, those, those um, past generations, you know, little by little, and then we'll get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And as one of my great um, teachers, uh, Blackfoot leader Leroy Little Bear um, always says, it's, we find our cultural resilience in the medicines of the land. And those medicines in the land are always available to us. And we just need to listen more. And I want to share just a quick hopeful story that one of my great teachers and and trickster um, uh, leaders, L. Frank Manriquez um, comes from, she says, an extinct people, um, the indigenous people of Los Angeles, her nation did not get any treaties or federal recognition or sovereign status. Her language wasn't spoken for about 80 years, 100 years, but she started rehydrating her hands with the cultural practices of basket weaving. She tells a story of how whenever she wove the baskets by studying the old designs and, you know, museum books and history books and photographs and in different archives, she would weave her baskets and hear these voices. And she thought she was going crazy. And then she went and listened to some of the old wax cylinder recordings of her ancestors. And she was hearing the language of her ancestors. And she now sings songs and shares prayers and has helped revitalize the so-called extinct language by really embodying the practices of our ancestors with her hands and the plants, the plancestors. And that brought back the wisdom and the words, the breath of her ancestors so that she could speak it again. Silent No More, Breath of Life is the conference they do for people who have no more speakers and are in the process of, they say, awakening sleeping giants or rehydrating those languages that are dormant in the earth. We don't believe they're extinct forever. We believe they're sleeping and dormant and can be rehydrated and reawakened. So that listening process that you both speak about is so critical. Thank you. Another question here. Uh, let's see. I think we've kind of addressed this one, Is but I'll share it anyway. Thank you, Ariel. Is there a connection between individual and collective trauma and healing with remembering and restoring kinship with both humans and the and non-human beings so the relationship between individual and collective trauma and healing which i think you spoke to rowan but maybe could share a bit more about that what i would like to uh, center is that this work is inherently collective work right and so you have to find your people to help you you know Help, help you find your people. And I say people in a broad context that might be the non-human people, right? It might be the plants and the animals or the minerals. Um, but the weight of the work of this time, you can't carry it on your shoulders all by yourself. 
there's work that you have to do inside of yourself, but the weight can only be carried by the village. And we live in a time of a splintered village. We recognize that. Um, but if, you know, finding a little pod of people who are like-minded, who want to shoulder in and, and, and do this work, um, I think is, is critical um, in, in, in keeping our sanity and, and, and feeling uh, that sense of belonging that I think we're so hardwired for as humans. Um, and so I think, um, you know, finding groups, like I've been doing um, somatic abolitionist work with Rasma in, in like a study group. So finding people who, you know, who um, do this together, even just having a food summit, you know, an indigenous food summit or a workshop like we've had Melissa at the farm there, mm-hmm. bringing people together and, and eating food and touching the food. It, it brings a sense of that healing. Like we start to, again, turn that compost pile of the pain of people feeling disconnected. I mean, so often I've taught a seed keeping workshop and then people will be weeping at the end. And they said, I never knew this was something that I missed. You know, like so many people who are alive today were not given a bundle of this birthright that we all descend from. We all descend from people who made these agreements with plant ancestors that said that we would take care of you and they would take care of us. And so when people start getting their hands on these seeds, it's like it, it, same happened for me. It opened up this longing of something we didn't know we missed so desperately, a sadness of grief. Um, And so when we come together in these spaces, that in and of itself, even though it's a pleasure practice, even though we're doing beautiful things, it helps us to heal. So not all healing has to be you know, intense and heavy. It can be sharing a feast or a meal or, or coming together and again, rehydrating these skills and, 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 and reconnecting uh, with our plant ancestors in that way. Um, so again, I think it's uh, just find your people, find your little group of people, whoever they are, that can continue to do this work alongside you. Mm-hmm. Rachel, would you like to share on the question of community and the collective healing yeah. emotion at I- the moment? I, I think it's a, it's a great question, and um, often the idea of the individual and the collective and the kind of the difference between it, really, you can break through all that if you really just think about us in relation, in relation and in relationships, you know, so we don't exist without being in relation to other people. Um, we also, we can extend that because we're in relationship with the environment. We can extend that because we're in relationship with the animals and the other species that share our environment. We can keep extending that <clears throat> so we don't have to be stuck in a, you know, individual collective constructs because we are in relation. And I think that's the power of the sacred ecology mm. and the work that's been done in that space is that it reminds us that, as Rowan has said, we're woven into this kin relationships. And that's really... Um, you know, like communities like like we're doing here, we're part of that that movement and that rethinking and that reimagining by restating um, what those relationships are and what they are, how they will be meaningful for us moving forward. Mm, thank you so much. I'd like to close our section before I give our wonderful hosts and sponsors a chance um, to share. We conclude this fabulous book. It's always hard with these backgrounds. Um, the um, What kind of ancestor do you want to be just released this year? We close 
and we close our seventh fire section with a poem by the fabulous Linda Hogan, uh, award-winning Chickasaw writer of novels and poetry and nonfiction, um, eloquent um, teacher of the Chickasaw and of Native America. And blessings to you, Linda, who's been such a teacher to Rowan and I and just so many people, such an inspiration. This is Lost in the Milky Way. Some of us are like trees that grow with the spiral grain, as if prepared for the path of the spirit's journey to the world of all souls. It is not an easy path. A dog stands at an opening constellation before you can reach that great helping hand. The dog wants to know, did you ever harm an animal? hurt any creature, or did you take a life you didn't eat? This is only the first of the map. There is another my people made of what is further beyond this galaxy. It is a, it is a world that can't be imagined by usual means. After the first, it could be a map to forever. It could be a cartography shining only at some times of the year like a great web of finery. Some spider pulled from herself to help you recall your true following, your first breath in the dark cold. The next door opens and old woman counts your scars. She is interested in how you have been hurt and not in anything akin to sin. From between stars are the words we now refuse, loneliness, longing, whatever suffering might follow your life into the sky. Once those are gone, the life you had against your own will, the hope, even the prayers, take you one more bend around that river of sky. Miigwech, thank you so much, Rowan and Rachel, for your words of wisdom sharing today about the seventh fire and our ancestors. Thank you, Melissa, and thanks to both of you. I think Catherine has a few words she'd like to say next. Thanks, Kira. Thank you, Melissa, Rowan, and Rachel. My heart is feeling so open and held after this conversation. And um I hesitate to add words after the poetry, but I do want to just share with everyone who's gathered today um, about the ancestor book that Melissa and Rachel also held up. I'll hold it up here. Um, that was published with the University of Chicago Press. And I hope if you haven't already found your way to this book that you might after this conversation today, because I see it as one way that um, we can support each other in this healing work that Rowan and Rachel shared about. It's one place to begin to find some of that community and ideas for what that community holding us in this work of discovering and listening to our ancestral lineages, what kind of ancestor we are to be. Um, and so on that note, I just want to uplift an invitation that I heard from Rowan and Rachel um, that I'm holding, and I hope we can all uh, find a, a space today, this idea to listen to the earth of your body and to hear the intel ancestral intelligences inside of our bodies. Um, and the conversation about intergenerational trauma, I think, is one of the places where it becomes tempting to enter into the noise and the distraction, because doing this work alone uh, 
hearing much of that is uh, challenging and we aren't meant to do it alone. So I hope that everyone joining today feels supported in entering that in whatever place you are in that work and uh, that you find the community and the support to continue this composting. Thank you so much for all the ideas you've shared and for this beautiful invitation. And Kira, thank you for the space. Thank you so much to all of you. I see I see that we're at time and I just want to thank all of the beautiful people who've joined us and the wonderful comments and the words from everyone. It's such an honor for uh, the center to participate in this and to be a part of this community with all of you. So thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, uh, again, I just want to mention that you can also follow our feed on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and you'll uh, be able to get the recordings that way. One more reminder to join us next Friday for the second half of this conversation. Melissa Nelson, Rowan White, and Rachel Wolfram, thank you for being with us at the New School at Commonweal. See you next time. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Rowan White, Rachel Wolfgram, and host Melissa K. Nelson, co-sponsored with the Center for Humans and Nature. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Jeremy Cohen. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.